She's bold. She's beautiful. She's black. She's talented. She's resilient. On this International Women's Day, I have the pleasure of presenting and interviewing Insala Ward, a woman who experienced systemic racism at a very young age. The experience robbed her of confidence and also made her do things that almost cost her a brilliant career later in life. But she remained unbreakable as she went from bars to bars as a sex worker and she turned things around for herself to become a jury's doctor, a barrister, helping people at all times of the day and going out campaigning for women against all odds. Now she has become a solutions architect for businesses, helping businesses thrive and survive in a very tough environment. Join me in welcoming this deserving woman on this special Women's Day episode of the Made Musings podcast. Welcome to the Made Musings podcast, Madam Ward. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Nice having you. Let's start by just getting to know you a bit, where you're currently based, and for the listeners who may know little or nothing about Madame World, in a sentence or two, how would you describe who you are? Oh my God. Uh, in one world, I would say probably resilient. Um, I'm currently based out of Atlanta, Georgia in the United States, which is amazing. I love Atlanta. I, I also lived in Colorado for a very, very long time, which was beautiful. I love the mountains. I'm a water child also. I love the beach. The beach is my happy place. So I travel to Florida a lot. So I do a lot of traveling within the States, but I do it outside of the States as well. So where were you born and raised? So I was born in North Carolina. I was born in, in Winston-Salem. I was raised um, in a small town called Wilson. We call it Wideweight Wilson, actually. So I, I, I'm from North Carolina, and I went to undergrad in North Carolina as well, North Carolina Central University. I'm an Eagle, HBCU pride, Eagle pride. And then after that, I, I moved to Colorado for law school. I stayed in Colorado for over a decade, actually probably going on 15 years. And now I'm in Atlanta, Georgia, but I've done so much traveling. I plan on Moving overseas somewhere sometime soon after COVID kind of dies down a little bit and everybody gets starts to get better and the economy starts to get better and the world starts to get better. So we hope that will happen soon. So what was life like for you growing up? Oh my goodness. So, so that's a, lo- a loaded question. I mean, life was, it was amazing, but it had its challenges. And I say it's amazing because I'm, I'm one to always believe that everything in life is a lesson or a blessing. So a lot of times people have a tendency to be like, oh my God, you know, you had such a, a strenuous life or a rough life or, you know, a, a very challenging childhood. But to me, everything was life in life was, was a lesson or a blessing. So it helped me to become the person that I am today. And I was able to maximized off of every every moment of that. So I grew up in North Carolina. One of the things that I remember when I was younger, when I was eight years old, I did this play in school. And in the play, I got to, well, I wanted to play the lawyer in the play. And when I initially wanted to play the lawyer, 
the teacher thought that it might not have been a good idea that I played the lawyer, but I insisted on it. I've always been the type of person where I go after everything that I want in life. If I want it, I'm going to go after it and nobody's going to be able to tell me no. So I kept insisting that I had to play the lawyer in this play. And because my teacher was resistant to me playing the lawyer, it made me do a little bit more research into the character so that I could get the role. And I eventually started to realize that, hey, you know, I think I do want to become a lawyer in life. Like I want to be able to help people in this way. Later on, after that, even though I, you know, and when I was eight years old, I played that play, I knew I wanted to be a lawyer. But as I got older, I started to realize how being a lawyer could probably improve my life. Uh, a lot of people don't know, you know, what happened to me when I was younger, because all they hear about is, you know, when I became a lawyer, and then when I opened my own business architect firm. But before that, my, my story kind of started on, you know, in crack houses and corner blocks. My mom was addicted to crack cocaine ever since I was probably maybe seven or eight years old. And when I was 11 years old, my mom ended up getting shot in a crack cocaine deal. It went bad. I'm so sorry and, to hear that. You know, I, I was sad that she got shot as well. She did survive. God is good. She survived, uh, but she was she was paralyzed for, for several years afterwards. So she really, in the beginning, couldn't move around. I remember having, you know, she had, you know, wounds that went all the way through her body. And we had to be in my grandmother. We had to actually, you know, clean those wounds out on multiple times a day while she had to lay in bed because she couldn't move. Uh, and during that time, she really, really got depressed and she became even more addicted to crack cocaine. So I saw a lot of people in my life around me, in addition to my parents, you know, uncles, aunties, people that were in my community, my peers, my elders that were a part of the crack cocaine community in some way, whether that was addicts or dealers. And I saw a lot of people that didn't really have the, the benefit of having legal representation or even justice at all in the criminal industrial complex. So I knew early that I wanted to be able to help or rescue. You know, I actually had to do some, some self-work around the idea of rescuing, but um, to help rescue the people that I loved. So that pushed me even more to become an attorney later on in my life because I wanted to be that service to them so that I could provide the, the help and the resources that we didn't have. Before I really got to that place, you know, I myself um, ended up getting involved in the sex work industry at a very, very, very young age. A lot of times people, you know, really don't understand the sex work industry. So, you know, when I say sex worker, I mean a person that sells, exchanges sex for money. Um, oh. When I first started, I was about 12 years old. Yes. You talked about your mom being involved in crack cocaine. That must have been a difficult period for you before you got involved in sex work. What was life like seeing your mom in that situation? You know, I won't say that it was a difficult, a difficult time. I think that life for, for every child <laughs> can be difficult to me. You know, I, I think that my biggest uh, superpower, you know, especially being your own superhero, but my, my biggest superpower is the, the ability to reframe things, anything that's happening to me and anything that's happening in the world to reframe it. So I was able to use my, my superpower from, from, from a very young age being able to see the positive, turning anything into a positive and, and being able to make the most of it. So even though my mom was um, addicted to crack cocaine at the time, some of the most memorable times that I had with her was during those times. Like, for example, I remember, you know, my mom, the times when my mom was home before she got shot, she would have, she would, you know, smoke crack cocaine in the bathroom um, and she would have me with her. 
while, you know, she was in the bathroom. We were, it was almost like, it was just kind of like a little clubhouse was in the bathroom. And I remember just sitting on the bathroom floor and talking to her about any and everything that was happening in my life. And she would always listen to anything that I had to say, anything I had to talk about while she was getting high. So some of the most memorable times that I had, some of the most, the, the strongest impacts that she had on my life is just by listening and talking to me when she was high. So even when I was younger, even though she was addicted to crack cocaine, it wasn't necessarily something that I saw as a negative thing. I mean, there was some negative times, but we, we made the most of it. I do remember when I was younger, my mom used to have me as her lookout. So the times that we weren't in the house, sometimes she would drive a, around from place to place to place while she was getting high. And this one particular time that she was driving around, like she would always have me as a lookout, which means that I was supposed to watch if any police officers or, or cops were getting behind her. So if anybody was watching us while she was getting high in the car, and occasionally she would pick up people on these trips. Some of them were strangers. Some of them were people that she didn't know. But there was one time when she got stopped by an officer and I guess she could smell the crack cocaine in the car, but she, she swallowed it before he actually got to the window. And, and he was so upset that she had swallowed the evidence that he started to put his hands around her neck and choke her to try to get her to spit the crack cocaine up. And I remember watching this even back then. And afterwards, she, you know, at, at one point while he was choking her, she ended up passing out. But she came back and she revived, but she was trying to tell people about her experience that happened to her. And, and nobody really believed that officers, you know, were this abusive. They were interacting with people in the streets. And that was another reason that really, you know, pushed me to get involved in, in law and pushed me to get, be a part of the Black Lives Matter movement because I wanted people like my mom and the people that I grew up with to know that I believed them. And whatever their story was, I wanted to help to be able to get that out. It must have been traumatizing for you watching somebody choke your mom. You were there with her in the car. And then you see somebody actually strangling her because she had swallowed that evidence they wanted to obtain. You said she would normally go around. Was it not strange picking up people she never knew? I don't think that's normal for even a child to witness. How did that impact on you as well? You know, at, at the time when I was younger, I didn't realize how much it impacted me. I just wanted to spend time with my mom and I was grateful for the opportunity to, to meet new people and listen to the stories. One thing that I have noticed as an adult, and, and this is actually a recent epiphany that I had about my childhood experience, is that I used to love to hear the different stories of the different people that she would pick up. Everybody that she interacted with, regardless of whether they knew her or not, you know, it, it's something about like people in the crack era, like they you, they can tell like by looking at another person if they have you know smoked crack cocaine before. We would call them rock stars in our community. My my family and friends they wouldn't let you say you know crack addicts or crackheads because they felt like that was an insult. So we called people that were surviving crack cocaine addiction rock stars because you know, we have to honor the fact that. You know, our, a lot of the times, the people that were addicted to crack cocaine, this was never their plan. This wasn't their journey. And crack cocaine was put into Black communities in the United States on purpose 
to be able to to prevent us from being able to to join forces and to be able to build successful families and communities and businesses or the fight against the injustice of the criminal industrial complex. So this really limited a lot of the people that could have been some of the biggest activists and, and, and the biggest rock stars and the biggest successful people of our time from being able to, to reach their highest potential. So we called them rock stars when I was growing up to be able to honor the fact that they survived it. But um, I remember a lot of times listening to the stories that they were telling. Some of them were hard stories. Some of them were survivor stories. Some of them were very happy stories. And I loved just listening to the stories. I think that some of my storytelling capability that I have now probably came from listening to all of these different stories when I was younger of the different random strangers that um, my mom would meet in the middle of the night because they would be able to, they, they could go to a, a, a grocery store and be able to spot out somebody that was addicted to crack cocaine and just start having a conversation and then start, you know, hanging out together. Now in my adult time, I realized that I still have a tendency to love to have conversations and meetings with strangers. I have traveled all over the world from Nairobi, Kenya to London, um, to Switzerland, to Russia. You know, I've traveled so many different places and I love just starting conversations with strangers and getting to know them and just listening to their story. So I realized recently that a lot of that comes from being with my mom when I was like seven, eight, nine years old and just listening to all the stories of the random strangers that she was interacting with. Oh, thank you so much for sharing that part of your experience with your mom. Going on to when you said you were a sex worker, how did you actually get into that? Was that influenced by those strangers you saw coming to your mom? Or was it just something that you, as a teenager, just got into? How did that happen? It was a slow process. Initially, you know, I had to really kind of analyze um, some of the things that I was longing for as a child to even understand how my life transitioned into sex work. And one of the things that happened is that when I was younger, and after my mom got shot and she wasn't able to move around, she started to disconnect from from everybody, not just me, but from everybody. But unfortunately, that included me as well. So we, we, we didn't have those long conversations that we used to have in the bathroom anymore. Uh, we didn't have those rides around town in the middle of the night, you know, where, you know, she would just talk to me or we would hear stories from other people. She didn't even really want to interact with me as much because, you know, she was depressed. She was in pain. She couldn't get around. She felt like her life had changed. So she was dealing with her own battle score at the time. I ended up moving in with my grandmother um, because my mom really couldn't take care of me and my siblings anymore. This disconnect that happened, you know, with me and my mom, which resulted later on in the disconnect, the emotional disconnect that I was having with the rest of the world. So I had a very strong desire just growing up to be loved, right? To be um, accepted uh, or, or to be taken care of. So initially it really just started out with me dating a lot of um, older, older men at the time. When I was that age, when I was like 11, 12, 13 years old, I was still a full figured girl. I was full figured for my age. I never looked like 11, 12, or 13-year-old girl. I looked like an older woman because I was a lot thicker. I already had breasts and I already had, you know, a lot of booty. And in addition to the fact that I was I was chubby for 11 or 12-year-old, but for a grown woman, 
I just look curvy. I look like a curvy grown woman. So a lot of the times the young people that were my age uh, couldn't really connect with me because I looked a little different than them and I looked so much older and I was so much more developed than they were. So I attracted a lot of older men in my life. So initially it was just searching to be loved by them and hearing a lot of promises you know, that they were going to do, you know, X, Y, and Z things for me. So, you know, from 11, 12, 13 year old perspective, you know, initially it was just, Hey, you know, I want you to buy me this outfit or buy me this, or, you know, give me X, Y, and Z. Sometimes they would come through and sometimes they weren't, but the times they didn't come through actually caused me to develop a, a hustle because I wanted to make sure that I wasn't being taken advantage of. So when they wouldn't come through, that adjusted my my own game of how I dealt with, with men to make sure that they were actually providing these these things up front, okay? You know, so instead of now, you know, um, relying on you to hold to your, to your word and buy me X, Y, and Z, I'm going to require you to just give me $200 in the beginning before I even start, before I even do anything with you so I can make sure that you don't hustle me because I don't want to be hustled, right? So I developed a hustle mentality to just to keep from being hustled by grown men, right? And then eventually what would happen is that I dealt with, you know, a lot of the people in my community who, you know, they might've been dealers, they might've been addicts, or they just could have been, you know, people that were growing up in the same conditions as I was. They were like, well, you know, you're not really, you're kind of selling yourself short when you're charging, you know, when you're asked for a hundred dollars or $200 or whatever the case may be, you really, you know, you should be getting more money for X, Y, and Z. So over time, it just, it became more of a business than, than just an exchange of emotions and money. And then eventually, you know, as I got older, I found multiple avenues of being able to get into the sex work industry. It wasn't just dealing directly with men or getting, you know, referrals from my friends or my mother friends of, you know, of people that were, you know, interested in, in having sex with me or um, interested in connecting with me. Eventually, I started to find other avenues that I could add on to that, such as escort services and strip clubs and, and dealing with customers directly that were just like, hey, I'm going to pay you this and I want you to do this for me. So it, it was a, it, it was progressive. It, it, it wasn't something that happened overnight. It was a process of just wanting to be loved and then wanting not to be hustled. And eventually it turned into a business. Thank you so much. Yes, you said it was a process, but part of that process was born out of your loneliness. You missed your mom. You missed that rapport, the chats you used to have with your mom. And you wanted things was that because the responsibility was on you to provide for the family because your mom was not able to work at that time no i i, I wasn't i wasn't required to financially provide for the family by the way are you the oldest in the family i am i am the oldest yes yeah that's yes, that yeah that's part. that's part of the responsibility your mom was a major provider for the family and she couldn't work I wasn't required to financially provide for my for my family um, when I was younger. I, I was the person that was taking care of them um, physically and taking care of them in person in the beginning, um, especially up until the point that my mom got shot. There was, you know, several times when she would disappear and we would call those missions before she got shot. And so she would be gone for days sometimes and I would have to stay with my brothers. At the time, I had two younger brothers. So when she got shot, one of my brothers was probably about four years old and the other one was a baby, not even a year old yet. 
and she just didn't come home that day. But in, in the beginning, I wasn't too concerned because it was normal for her occasionally to go on these missions when she wouldn't come home to uh, wouldn't come home for a few days. And I had a routine for that. This happened to be around the holidays. This was around Christmas. So whereas normally she would be gone, I'm missing for like two or three days or maybe three or four days. It got to the point here where she was gone for two weeks. And then eventually what happened is that she was gone for Christmas and that had never happened before. So my grandparents called me on the phone and they were like, um, you know, what'd you get for Christmas? And I was like, I, I didn't get anything for Christmas. And I was like, what you mean? Your mom always gets you something for Christmas. It's like, no, you know, Santa Claus ain't bringing nothing for Christmas you know, this year. And that was a red flag to them. Okay, something that's going on because my mom, you know, she was amazing. And she taught me, you know, a by any means necessary mentality. Even when she didn't have the money, she would figure out a way to make sure that we would get Christmas and we would get the things that we financially needed. So I was used to taking care of the family um, physically. Then I didn't have to take care of the, the family financially. My mom did that. So when she didn't show up, my grandmother ended up coming down to where we were. We were in Charlotte, North Carolina at the time. I'm um, looking for my mom, looking in the jails, looking in the hospitals. And we found out at that point that she got shot. And that's kind of what really that created this hurricane of other things that happened in life where, you know, everything just changed. But um, you asked, you know, what, what did it come out of? Like whether I had to take care of my family, like I didn't have to take care of my family financially at all. I did have to take care of them physically and emotionally because my mom was gone or would disappear at certain times. Thank you so much for that. In the United States of America, racial discrimination has existed for years. And people often experience discrimination in educational institutions, workplaces, and public places. How has discrimination impacted you as an African-American woman living in the United States? The sex work came in, I think, from my experience more so trying to find my, my worth as a, as, as a young black girl at the time, there were so many times when I told, when I was told that I wasn't valuable. Like I heard that from, you know, TV, I heard that from my peers, you know, the people in my community, they, you know, they were always said that there was something that was less valuable and less um, desirable about being a black woman, whether it was because my skin didn't look a certain way, you know, I wasn't light enough. I didn't have long enough hair. My hair wasn't straight enough. I wasn't skinny enough. You know, my skin wasn't smooth enough. There was always something that reminded me, whether it was from my community or whether it was on TV or whether it was from the people that I love, like friends and family, there was always something that was reminding me that I wasn't worthy as this Black woman, as this Black girl. So I never felt like I was valuable. I never felt like I had any worth. So I was trying to constantly find a way to prove my worth and my value. On top of that, at that time, my mom started to disconnect from me. So not only did I not have the world, you know, reinforcing, you know, what, what I needed at the time, but now my mom was disconnecting. So the sex work came in where it was a, it was a tangible means of being able to prove to myself in the world, like, Hey, look, I'm valuable. Not only am I valuable, but look, I can make people pay for me. So I have something tangible here that I can hold and touch and feel and smell and use to show that somebody sees value in me, you know, more value than, you know, then this person over here, look, you know, I, I, I was dealing with a lot of self-esteem issues and, and self-love issues at the time. So the money was an exchange that made me feel better about who I was as a, as a black woman at that time. 
All right, thank you. That that was uh, quite revealing because yes, a lot of black women actually suffer from self-esteem issues. You know, they feel like okay, I'm not worth it, and this is why things like this happen. And I'm glad we're talking about it today. This is for somebody to actually learn from this podcast, so they would understand why some things happen. Thank you so much for that. How long did you do this sex work for? I did sex work on and off between the ages of, of roughly, and this is a rough estimate, between the ages of roughly 12 and 19. What made you leave sex work? What was the driving force behind that decision to leave when you left? There was a few things that, that kind of transitioned me to be able to transcend into a different uh, or to a higher um, being internally. First of all, it was like I, I had vision. I had the vision ever since I was eight years old that there was something bigger for me. I knew that I wanted to be an attorney ever since I was eight years old. So even though I, I was in the sex work industry, I knew that this point in my life, it wasn't permanent. It wasn't forever. It was something that was happening for the time being. So people would, you know, would, some people would know what was going on. Some people would make comments about it. You know, people had rumors, but I, I knew it was just a comma in my life. It wasn't the period. This wasn't the end. So having that vision really pushed me ultimately to be able to get to the end game, to be able to get to the end point and not to give up because there were a lot of times that I wanted to give up in life. In fact, that's how I learned not to be so afraid of the word no, you know, because there were so many people that told me that I couldn't do what I, what I wanted to do in life because I had this history, because I was in the sex work industry, because I had a criminal record, because people knew what I was doing. Right. So there was a lot of times where people like, well, you can't be an attorney. You know, you can't be anything successful because now you have this reputation and now everybody knows X, Y and Z. But one of the things that I learned from the rock stars in my community is not to be afraid of no. You know, thank you so much for that. Success and change can be difficult to achieve without any help. Did you have anyone who motivated you along the way? Can you tell a story about their influence? One of the people in my life that really pushed me during that time is my attorney, actually. I was actually going through a criminal case at the time, which I, you know, at the time I started uh -huh. to feel like, okay, oh my God, there's nothing that I can do anymore to be able to, to, to work towards my divine purpose. I'm never going to be an attorney. I'm never going to be able to, to be anything good. And my attorney, you know, he came to me, he was, he was handling a case for me. And he was like, you know, he said, you seem so much smarter than this. He was like, you know, why, why are you even doing these things? You know, and I told him, I said, you know what, I always wanted to be an attorney, but now, you know, that's not possible. When you were younger, your teacher told you you couldn't act a lawyer when you said you were interested in playing the part of the lawyer in the school play. And then that actually affected your self-confidence. And I think it's probably impacted on you in a lot of ways that you knew till your attorney pushed you to say you could do it. Because even the, you said the attorney regulation there told you no 1,000 times, you were rejected 1,001 times, but you, you were resilient. What was that driving force that made you believe in yourself again? 
as I was saying, yeah, so I, I heard I heard no, you know, a thousand times. And, and like I said, one of the things is that, I, you know, I grew up in a community of rock stars that weren't afraid of no. And, you know, they told me, you know, no a thousand times. And if I had given up, then I, I wouldn't have gotten to where I am today. And growing up, I saw my community that wasn't afraid of no. I had uncles and aunts that would, you know, ask me for $5 every day. They, and they probably asked 10, 50, 20 other people for $5 every day as well. And, you know, I would say no the first time. And then they would come back to me the next day. Like, I never told them no that first time. You know, ask me for $5. Let me get $5. Let me get $5. I'd be like, no. They come back again the next day. Let me get $5. And I'd be like, no. And they come back again the next day. But like, let me get $5. You'd be like, dad, I just told you no three times before. And you still asking me? They would just keep asking over and over again. Like, you never told them no. Because they weren't afraid of rejection until finally you'd be like, fine, here's $5. Take it. Don't ask me again, right? They weren't afraid of that rejection. If they weren't afraid of getting out there and making and and making it happen for themselves, then why was I going to be afraid of rejection? Why was I going to be afraid of judgment? You know, these were people that they got a lot of kickback and we still disrespect and abuse rock stars in our community today. We see them, you know, people just disregard them, walk past them, you know, say negative things about them. I've seen people for little things on TV where they were even doing crazy things to rock stars, like, you know, setting them on fire or, you know, doing things to hurt them simply because they were addicted to crack cocaine. So, you know, I knew that if the people that I loved were not afraid of rejection, then I couldn't be afraid of rejection. Not to mention the fact that my mom taught me by any means necessary. She would always make sure that we were financially provided for by any means necessary, no matter what she had to do. So I knew that, you know, I had to go after my divine purpose by any means necessary and that I couldn't take no for no for an answer. I had to make sure that they understood what it was that I was offering to them. So when attorney regulation approached uh, approached me and they said no a thousand times, I knew that what they meant was that they didn't understand what it was that I was offering to them. They didn't know what it was that I was offering as a young black female attorney that had gone through my experience, what that would do for the law, what that would do for black people, what that would do for people that had simply just gone to experience through experiences similar to what I had gone through. So I had to reframe it for them even at that point until they got to the point of saying yes. Thank you so much. Many people have ideas, dreams, and passions, but just don't see through. But you did. Was there an aha moment that made you decide you would pursue this vision? When was that moment? When I was telling you before that um, I had an attorney at the time who represented me. He was representing me in a case that I was going through. And he was like, you know, Salah, he was like, you know, you are so smart. I don't even know why you're doing this. What? Why are you doing this with your life? You can be doing so much more. And I was like, you know, I always wanted to be an attorney. But I was like, you know, it's not it's not possible anymore for me because now I have a criminal history and now everybody knows that I was in sex work and now nobody's going to want me to represent them. So that's just not feasible for me. And he said, you know what, Salam? He said, I know people that have murdered others and they were still able to be an attorneys. And he said, don't let anybody tell you that you can't go after your future because of something that you did in your past. He's like, they're only trying to express to you the limitations that they put on themselves. But those are not your limitations. Only you can set your limitations. And that was kind of like a moment that kind of clicked for me that no really wasn't no you know, that I, I could reframe people's no's and I could give them an alternative that worked in my favor. So it was a combination of things. It was so many things that was happening at the same time that really pushed me to getting into law. 
Thank you. Yes, I believe only you have the power to set your limitations. Only you have the power to set your achievement level. Only you know where you want to be. It sounds like you were a victim of circumstances and you went into sex work in order to, I mean, prove yourself, feel that sense of self-worth and self-esteem, but you've turned things around you gone on to be a barrister, to be an attorney. And even though you were told no countless times, you never gave up, you, you put on that fight. And that was the fight that you needed to have put on when somebody said no in the first instance. That's resilience to me. And that's really admirable. Yes, you had a sex work, criminal record. It was probably not the best route to go down. But you've turned things around. It's just life. So you have gone from bars to bars. And now you are a jury's doctor. What does that even mean? What do you do on a daily basis as a jury's doctor? Okay, perfect. Yeah, I think that's definitely like a great, a great uh, thing to end on. So I actually, while I was practicing, I practiced for going on a, um, a decade. I don't practice anymore here in Atlanta, Georgia. But while I was practicing, um, I did business bankruptcy and criminal law. So uh, in, in criminal law, I, I worked on a lot of cases that involved people that were in the, the Black Lives Matter moment. So I, I dealt with a lot of cases where Black people uh, were being abused by police officers, but had been accused of, of a criminal act. So I make sure that I, I was there to provide them the representation of the people that I love and that the people that I grew up with didn't get when I was younger. So I was able to fulfill that that divine purpose. And there was some monumental, some some amazing cases that we'll have to talk about <laughs> on the podcast. Um, but currently I, I have a business architect firm in Atlanta, Georgia. So what I do is I help uh, small to mid-sized businesses um, to be able to scale their companies to enterprise level. So I help take companies from hustle to enterprise. While I was practicing law, I like I told you before, I did business in bankruptcy, but all of my clients would always come to me when they were depressed. They would come to me when they was about to lose all of their money or they was about to lose their house or they was about to lose their business because they was gonna file for chapter seven or chapter 11 or chapter 13. And I was able to, during this time, see hundreds of patterns of businesses of what they did before they actually filed for bankruptcy. So I was able to see the mistakes that they made. But of course, being in the law industry, that's really a reactive industry. It's not very proactive. There's very there's a lot of limits on what you can do within the law when it comes to businesses and being able to help them to become successful. So I wanted to be able to provide resources for small to uh, mid-sized businesses to help them, to prevent them from getting into bankruptcy and prevent them from closing. Of course, we know that 80 to 90% of the businesses around the United States, they end up closing within five years. And being within the, the criminal industrial complex on both sides of it, um, also growing up in disenfranchised communities, communities that was, that was in poverty, I was a strong believer that the, the revolution is financial. You know, and, and a lot of our communities are, are suffering because we don't have the financial resources um, to be able to flourish. So I wanted to be able to be that support system for them. So at my business architect firm now, um, what I do is I provide the resources to help take businesses to that enterprise level so that we can fight the revolution from the inside. 
All right. Okay. So as a business architect, you say you provide resources. What are these resources that you do actually provide? Like, what is it? Is it financial resources? Is it human resources? Is it, I mean, what, what sort of resources? There's quite a few things that we do. Um, one of the first things that we do is that one thing I realized um, about entrepreneurs while, while dealing with entrepreneurs and business and bankruptcy is that a lot of times we're, we're reinventing the wheel and we feel like we have to do everything on our own. Uh-huh. So we wear all these different hats. We wear like, you know, we're the accountant, the bookkeeper, the lawyer, we're customer service, we're marketing, <laughs> we're promotions, we're PR, we're fulfillment. We do everything in our company and wear all these hats. So it puts us in a position where we are just pretty much mediocre in everything because we're spreading ourselves too thin. Not to mention that because we don't really have any, uh, the, the mentorship and the resources that we need, a lot of times we're reinventing the wheel on how things should be done. So what we do is we go in and we audit businesses to be able to analyze what's working for the business and to create the infrastructure and the systems to turn that company from that inter- from that, that hustle level to enterprise level. So we make sure that we go in there and we audit the, the customer service, we audit, the, we audit the human resources, the bookkeeping, the financials, um, we audit the fulfillment, we audit every aspect of their business so that we can create systems based on their business um, that's going to allow their, their, their company to run smoothly so that it's what's ne- what needs to be automated can be automated and what needs to be delegated can be delegated and then the rest can be eliminated. So that's the first thing that we do. Of course, we do also um, help small to mid-sized businesses to get access to grants and financial resources uh, as well as loans um, around the country as well. And the third thing that we do is that we help small to medium-sized businesses. One thing that we learned in COVID-19 is that everybody needs a digital source of income. Even if you're a service-based business or even if you're a brick-and-mortar business, everybody needs that digital source of income. So we also go in and we co-create the digital stream of revenue for our our small to mid-sized companies so that they can always have income producing and coming in, even if they can't necessarily touch their customers. And then the fourth thing that we do for our customers is that most of our, com- our our clients are thought leaders in the industry. So they're not just attorneys. They, they're generally the people that want to be the Johnny Cochran of law, or they're not just you know financial advisors. They- so in addition to making sure that the business is working efficiently and that we've set up the systems, we also make sure that our, our clients are seen as thought leaders. So we take them on tours internationally around the country and within the United States so that they can help people think differently about their particular area. Thank you so much. What is the difference between an expert and a thought leader in business? One of the main things that, you know, the difference between an expert and a thought leader, an expert can tell you how to do things. An expert will come in and say, okay, if you want to get to C, you need to do A and B. That's what an expert does. But a thought leader, a thought leader is somebody that will come in and make you think differently about that particular area of focus. So we help to craft our clients' industry and craft their, their brand so that they are seen as thought leaders. And then we take them on tours around the world so that people can learn from their thought leadership. Oh, thank you. That is so impressive. Yes. How long have you done this now? We did aspects of it within our firm because, like I said, we did um, business and bankruptcy law. So um, if we include the, the firm lifespan as well as the business architect firm, it's been a co- almost a couple of decades here. But the business architect firm in itself, it started in 2015. So now we're going on our sixth year as, um, for doing strictly only business architecture. But we also did some of it within the firm as well. But now for six years, we've been doing solely business architecture. 
Thank you. You mentioned your business helps other businesses to streamline their digital stream of revenues. Can you just highlight some of the ways you help business achieve this? So there's several different ways. So what we do is we, we come in and um, when we're doing the audit, we determine which aspect is going to be best for the business based on how the business operates and what their brand includes. But that could create that can include several different things that can create um, include creating a course for them, because if anybody has ever created a course, um, they know that that's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of work that you put into that. So we go in and we actually create the course for them while they're actually running the infrastructure of the business. It could include creating a digital app for them. A lot of times um, entrepreneurs want to add on an app that increases the revenue of their business. It could be a subscription box service. It's a lot of different avenues that we can take to create that digital stream. We cater it to the particular company so that we know what's going to work best for them. So it seems like you're always like a troublemaker in the business world. I mean, you shake up everything so that everybody knows where they stand. You did the sex work, but now you're shaking up the business world. And yeah, you did say, yes, you've been on TLC, CNN, Spam, BET, and on stage on the March for Women's Lives. Let's talk about that a bit. But I definitely love to talk about the March for Women's Lives because one of the things that really pulled me out of my condition when I was doing sex work is being around other empowered women, right? So the National Organization for Women is the largest women's organization in the world. I work for them as the National Field uh, Director for Women of Color. So ironically, you called me a troublemaker earlier. I was actually a professional troublemaker uh, <laughs> for a long time. We would go around organizing protests, demonstrations, civil disobedience around the country, getting people riled up and active about uh, women's rights um, and all of that that included. Um, during this time, I was um, privileged with the opportunity to organize um, the 2004 March for Women's Lives. And the 2004 March for Women's Lives was one of the largest marches on Washington for its time. We brought 1.2 million people um, to Washington, D.C. Um, that showed that they cared about women's rights in this country. So it was definitely a memorable time. And I'm really, really excited now, especially because in the United States, you know, we have some new people in office. So we really get to press the importance of women's rights and continue moving forward on those issues. Oh, thank you so much. So um, talking about all your businesses, where can listeners reach you and how can they connect with you? Yes, 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 absolutely. I love to connect with people. You can reach out to me on any of my platforms. The website is www.ninavafirm.com. That's spelled N-I-N-A-V-A-F-I-R-M.com. And there's a, a link up there to be able to book uh, consultations. The consultations are free. If you have any questions about your businesses and you just want to know how to get started or what your next step is, or if you just want to learn a little bit more about the services that we provide, then you can book that there. But you can also reach me on social media. My social media, um, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I'm more um, active on Facebook than I am on Instagram or Twitter um, or LinkedIn, but my all of them are the same. It's Salah Ward. My name is spelled a little differently. It's N-S-E-L-A-A-W-A-R-D. Um, the N is silent in my name, but my name is Salah Ward. So you can find me on Facebook at Salah Ward fan page. You can find me on Instagram at Salah Ward, Twitter at Salah Ward, or LinkedIn at Salah Ward. 
Oh, thank you so much for your time today. And it's been so awesome having you. And I really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you so much. I really pray that you have me back again because I would love to continue. I would. Definitely. We won't touch the edge of it. Yes, 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 yes. A big thank you to all our listeners who have been sending us messages through the message link. I would like to thank everyone who has listened in so far and contributed to this podcast. Thank you so much. We couldn't have done anything without you. Keep listening, keep sharing, keep downloading and keep liking. Thank you again.